from PRX. Today on Studio 360. There are people that are like Broadway human beings. They sort of go Broadway and their whole body vibrates at a different tempo. Regina Spector is a singer-songwriter, so how is she adapting her act for a Broadway stage? I sort of was thinking, like, what's a Broadway-ish thing? Tap dance. Well, let me collaborate with a tap dancer. Plus, how a certain kid's movie changed the life of a schoolteacher. I realized when I saw that scene that I needed to make a decision about my life, and I needed to jump and uh, see what happened. Learning to let go from Finding Nemo. That's ahead on Studio 360, right after this. Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is right Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken, please. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. It's Kurt Anderson. My piano at home in Moscow, it was a little upright. It was a Petrov. When Regina Spector emigrated from the Soviet Union 30 years ago at age nine, she left behind home and friends and family and her beloved piano. It was beautiful. It was tan. My mom's dad had given it to her when she was 16 and entering the conservatory. And it wasn't allowed to travel out with us, so I actually have no idea where it is in the world. Every little while I think about it and I send some good wishes its way. I hope that somebody's playing it. Regina still plays piano, lots of pianos all over the world. Her breakout album, Soviet Kitsch, came out in 2003, and her audience is now large. A whole new crop of fans discovered her after she wrote the theme song for Orange is the New Black, a show that became a hit when it went on the air six years ago. The animals, the animals, trap, trap, trap till the cages fall, the cages fall. Now, Regina Spector is curating her entire 20-year catalog of songs for her imminent week-long run at the Lundfontein Theater on Broadway. I sat down with her in a smaller New York City theater at the Steinway Studios. She sat at the piano, and I asked her if playing on one Steinway Model D Grand versus another Steinway Model D Grand was more or less the same. To me, they're alive, and they're kind of living creatures, but they're not all the same. And so they really can vary in how they they play, their action, um, their sound is profoundly different. And I really like pianos with kind of harder action so that I could play into it. But I know a lot of classical and jazz pianists prefer really light action so that their fingers can fly. (laughs) My fingers don't fly. So that's really just the physical uh, assertiveness you prefer? I really like when something resists and there's for me, you know, I I get to kind of work a little bit harder. That's why when I play keyboards, I really like weighted keyboards and um, 
they have some really good ones, but if you get a really light one, a lot of them, it feels like I'm playing plastic spoons or something. Do you, I mean, given that you, you go around the country and play on different pianos, do, do you miss what almost every other instrumentalist has, which is this relationship with her violin or his saxophone or that kind of thing? You know, I think that I would kind of go crazy if I always had the same piano. That's part of the fun is that I get to, you know, be like, oh, you know, this these next tours, I'm going to go with a nine foot grand and I'm going to feel like Alice in Wonderland. And I really do love to vary the instruments and their characters and uh, characteristics. And I feel like they kind of make you play different and they make you write differently. So it's kind of nice to to get their new energy. Right. Will you play a song? Mm-hmm. What will you play? God, uh, I'll play a song that is off of Soviet Kitsch because I've been going to some of the older songs of, in preparation for the shows. And um, this song is called Carbon Monoxide. Monoxide Soon I'll go to sleep If I don't got my socks on right They slide right off of my feet As I walk, 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 walk Walk, 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 walk Carbon monoxide As I take you home First time I got my socks on right But I don't have a gas mask on As I walk, 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 walk you home Yeah I'm so cool, I'm so cool, I'm so cool Walk, 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 walk you home Yeah I'm so cool, I'm so cool, I'm so cool Come on, daddy 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 Carbon Monoxide Soon we'll go to sleep No one will notice we're gone Cause we don't have a job to keep They'll just say that we're being lazy Sex crazed, sex crazed, hazy They'll just say we're living our whole life in bed And it will be in bed 
people will be oh so very much But we're still cool, we still cool, we still cool. Da 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 Yeah. But we're so cool, we're so cool, we're so cool. Come on, daddy. Come on, daddy. Come on, daddy. That was Regina Spector performing her song Carbon Minoxide off of her album Soviet Kitsch from 2003. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> exactly that. <laughs> that's, it's still beautiful. Uh, so you are about to do this this residency, as they're calling it, uh, in, this, mm-hmm. in this old Broadway theater, performing songs I assume you've written over your entire 20-year career, the whole oeuvre. Yeah, actually, yeah, it's funny. Even some that I think I must have written in high school, uh, some from the self-released records and some really from sort of the the days of playing a lot, a lot of bars and cafes all over New York City. So in that sense, having a big Broadway thing, that must have a special feeling for you being a you know, you're the home team, right? Well, I mean, as a New Yorker, it definitely does. But at the same time, it's kind of like, I feel like there are people that are like Broadway human beings, you know? And and I, I'm friends with a bunch of them and they sort of go Broadway and their whole body <laughs> vibrates at a different like tempo. It's almost like through them, I feel more pressure about it. <laughs> like I, I sort of wasn't even thinking of it as Broadway. I was sort of thinking like, oh, I could think about things like, oh, well, what's a Broadway-ish thing? Oh, tap dance. Well, let me collaborate. You know, I'm collaborating with a tap dancer. Really? Yeah, it's it's really cool, so you're, So you're theatricalizing. Yeah, I'm theatricalizing as much as, you know, feels uh, genuine. And I will not confirm nor deny the possibility of a snow machine, but that might be happening. <laughs> um, well, that all sounds... Like theater. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's basically, I mean, that's how I'm thinking of it. I'm thinking of it as, oh, you know, I've never really thought about approaching my songs in a theatrical way. But now that I'm doing it, it makes so much sense. I'm re- kind of reimagining a lot of the arrangements. Is there like a, oh, I'm looking back and looking at this first chunk of my work and, and trying to shape it into something that has a, a shape? You know, that's the really interesting thing about it, where some songs, they fit like I, you know, I don't know when the last time I played Carbon Monoxide is, you know, and it just, it feels really good to play it. And other songs I pick up, 
from maybe the similar era and they really don't feel right and I can't do it. Sometimes a song will always feel right to play and other songs, it might take me 10 years for it to feel right again. Really, but it, it will feel right again, you think? It's not just like, eh, I was 20 when I wrote that. I'm not feeling it. I'm done with that. There are some songs like that, for sure. There are, but most are not like that. And it's almost like there are certain songs that have things in them that I'm like, oh, this is like... I can never say this again. It just doesn't feel right coming out of my mouth ever again. And in terms of the lyrics, as a you're 39, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a 39-year-old, do you find different meanings and resonances in things you wrote? Because you're inevitably going to think of something differently at 39 than you did at 22. Yeah, definitely. You're not supposed to kill all of the previous versions of yourself in order to attain some kind of wisdom. And at the same time, you're not supposed to stay stagnant in some version because that's like the, the, I don't know, the ideal version or like a really good kind of golden age of you. So, you know, a lot of these songs, they're my friends. Like I get I get comfort from them. Some might be when I that I wrote when I was 18. So, you know, I've been playing, let's say, on the last bunch of tours, a song called Better. It's off of Begin to Hope. But I wrote that song when I was in high school. But I still get really happy playing it. And then I might go through a period where I won't play that song for 10 years. Right. Uh, could you play another song? Yeah, of course. What will this one be? This is uh, one of the tap collaborations. It's called Prisoners. Prisoners serving life sentences Wait for the earth to suddenly shake For the walls to somehow suddenly come crumbling, tumbling And for the bars to somehow magically break Ah, there's nothing wrong with them That a thousand bucks can't fix That a thousand arms can't hold down in the ground there to two in the stones with cusses like cavemen your mama was here but they want to run through the air with no barriers or obstacles gunmen or guard dogs or priests and to rise from the mud and start over and over with the people all dead. If Hans Christian Anderson could have had his way with me, then none of this shit would have ever gone down. In my cell, I'm tattooing myself with mermaids and swallows. And though I do swallow, my mama thinks I'm grown, but I'm really still little. And someday I will. Remember Someday I will remember Someday I will remember Someday 
That is Regina Spector performing her song Prisoners, and Kurt Vile could have done that. Well, it sounds amazing with tap. <laughs> um, you have become a, a composer for television and film, most famously in 2013, writing the Orange is the New Black theme song. I mean, you've done that a little bit before, right? Yeah, I love that process because, first of all, just selfishly, I think like every single person sitting at home, we love to get a peek in, behind the curtain with with uh, Orange is the New Black, uh, with Genji, whom I love so much. and she, Genji Cohen, who's the creator of Orange is the New Black. Yeah, Genji Cohen. And she is, that song, she just met me at a cafe and she was telling me about the story of it. So a lot of it, I started having ideas for just from her describing. And then as they were uploading them online before they had any kind of final mixes or final edits, I had a password and I could see it. And I was traveling on tour and I was just so hooked into the show. I didn't know if it was going to be a hit or if people were going to watch it, but I was in love with it. I, I love when you actually get something and you can collaborate and and use that as inspiration it comes from a really different place than my own music but at the same time it's so natural it feels really good to do it i mean that's one version of managing your career or dealing with that what about the the public persona part of it uh, i mean i've read interviews with you over the years where you're like oh i'm enough with the quirky kooky stuff <laughs> is that over pretty much and is is do you feel as though your kind of public persona today is is different than it was you know a dozen years ago well you know i mean it's funny because now i don't mind the quirky and the kooky as much as i did in those interviews i think i don't know i just i feel like i'm i'm constantly changing and i have to almost like catch up with my own idea of myself all the time sometimes i have outdated ideas of my own self and I think that we all tend to fall into that. We just decide we're like this or we don't like that. And then we forget to update that. Oh, actually, I do like that now, you know. And so and. I, I, but most of us don't a have many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who have some idea of us and B aren't monetizing whatever that idea is. You know, it's complicated. But, not, but the th okay, but this is the interesting thing. So I'm not like a lifestyle brand, and I'm not a politician. So I'm not beholden to any constituents, right? So I I don't promise that I'm a certain way. We're vast. We contain multitudes, and and we're very uh, paradoxical. But you know, just like the piano, it's like a well-tempered clavier. It's like we're trying to be as in tune, but knowing that that's absolutely impossible. <laughs> It's been a pleasure seeing you again and talking to you again. And uh, good you. luck on Broadway. Thank you, Kurt. Uh, I I I need it. <laughs> um, nah, you'll be you'll be great. Um, what are you going to play us out on? Um, a song called "Some Days," and it's off of Soviet Kitsch as well. Regina Spector's run on Broadway begins June twentieth. Some days aren't yours at all They come and go as if they're someone else's days They come and leave you behind someone else's face And it's harsher than yours And colder than yours They come and all quiet sweep up And then they leave And you don't hear a single floorboard creak they're so much stronger than the friends you try to keep 
Coming up next, how a strike in the 1950s in a New Mexico town and the movie it inspired still resonate today. They showed that the women could also get in the fight and be as militant as the men were and win if they had to. The fascinating story behind the little-known film Salt of the Earth. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. You've probably heard of the Hollywood Ten. These 10 left-wing screenwriters and directors who were accused of being dangerous commie subversives by the House Committee investigating Hollywood liberals and left-wingers in the late 1940s, before McCarthyism was even called that. These 10 appeared before the committee very uncooperatively. The most famous were Dalton Trumbo and Ring Lardner Jr. Another one was a director named Herbert Bieberman. It is perfectly clear to me, gentlemen, that if you continue in this uh, particular Mr. Chairman, fashion, will you direct the you Like the others in the Hollywood Ten, Bieberman was convicted of contempt of Congress and served six months in prison. And then he got out. And despite being blacklisted, he made a movie financed independently, along with fellow blacklisties, including Will Gear, who 20 years later showed up on TV as Grandpa on The Waltons. It was this brazenly, defiantly left-wing movie called Salt of the Earth 
its story drawn from a real-life strike by Mexican-American miners that had just taken place. Latino USA producer Sayer Quevedo went to Grant County, New Mexico to track down the details of that based on a true life history. How shall I begin my story that has no beginning? This is Esperanza. Esperanza Quintero. She's a housewife in New Mexico, living in a small town. When I was a child, it was called San Marcos. The Anglos changed the name to Zinktown. Zinktown... New Mexico, U.S.A. The image is black and white. Dusty roads, clothes swaying on laundry lines in the desert wind, shacks with corrugated tin roofs. Our roots go deep in this place, deeper than the pines, deeper than the mine shafts. Zinktown is owned by a mining company. All the land, all the houses, It all belongs to the company. I am a miner's wife. Eighteen years my husband has given to that mine, living half his life with dynamite and darkness. This is how the film Salt of the Earth begins. It's a portrait of a desolate place dominated by mining and by injustice. Mexicans in town don't have running water in their homes, while Anglos, as the Mexicans call them, do. Mexicans are more likely to be killed in the mines because they're required to work alone. But Anglos are allowed to work in pairs. And Mexicans are constantly put down by their bosses and treated like dirt. On this day, Ramon, Esperanza's husband, is considering whether to go on strike with the other Mexican-American miners. They want to demand equal pay and safer working conditions. What happens next in this small New Mexico mining town is not just the plot of a dramatic film. It's real. The miners, the discrimination, the dangerous working conditions, and the strike. They're all based on a true story. Before I tell you about what things are like in Grant County now, I'm going to tell you the story of how things used to be. And we're going to start with Arturo Flores. He was an important figure in the Empire's Inc. strikes. Hi. Please come in. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi, how's it going? It's my dad, Arthur Flores. He's 100 years old. Hello. One of the first presidents of Local 890. The Local 890 is the name of the miners' union in Grant County, by the way. We're going to hear about it a lot. And Arturo Flores was a union leader there in the 1950s. I I have the original. Do not hear. It's okay. I have. Okay. However, I have no. Problem with talking. I mean, if we're a hundred, I'm supposed to be dumb. <laughs> you seem like you're doing just fine. <laughs> Arturo sits in a wheelchair. His thin silver hair is neatly combed. His son, Larry, lays out a set of old photographs on the table. Here's dad, and here's some of the actors from the movie Clinton. Men walking out of the union hall. Women in flannels and big-brimmed hats, smiling triumphantly at the camera. There's Arturo. He has a full head of thick black hair. The photo is labeled Local 890 Activists, 1953. I've come here to speak with Arturo because he is, as far as I can tell, one of the oldest living witnesses of the Empire's Inc. strikes. 
Since Arturo can't hear that well, I write questions down on a piece of paper and hold them up for him to read. Arturo tells me about his childhood in Grant County. The place in the movie, Zinktown, isn't real, but the county is dotted with little mining towns. Arturo's dad worked in the mines, his mother was a homemaker, and Arturo was a smart kid. He loved to read. Before I was 12, I had read the Bible three times. I could read, I'd like to read so much. Arturo tells me the story about a countywide history competition when he was in sixth grade. He made it to the very last round and then lost. The teacher was very sad, came to me, and she said, you won, but you didn't get it to number one because it said they can't give it to a Mexican. That's the policy of the company, and they were hired by the company. Uh, the company at that time had a policy that Mexicans were treated differently. Mexicans were treated differently, he says. And the company Arturo is referring to is one of several companies that owned mines across Grant County. A historian, Ellen R. Baker, wrote a book about all of this called On Strike and On Film, and she explained just how much power the mining companies had. They owned the land and houses in some towns, and in other cases, actually owned whole towns themselves, which meant they could discriminate all they wanted. The company had houses for the Anglos and shacks for the Mexicans. Whole towns were divided. White people, or Anglos as they called them, on one side, and Mexicans on the other. Anglos were given higher-paying jobs in the mines, while Mexicans were forced to work underground for less. As a young man, Arturo Flores left for the military, and when he came back, he started working at the mine nearby, digging up zinc. The mine was run by the Empire Zinc Company. When I came back from a service, they treated me terribly. And I said, this is going to change. Arturo was a member of the miners' union at Empire Zinc Mine. Almost every mine in Grant County had a union, and so there were a lot of little unions, but they didn't work together to negotiate contracts or better working conditions, and their grievances were often ignored by the mining companies. Then, in the late 1940s, something changed. A representative from the International Union of Mine Mill and Smelter Workers showed up at Arturo's doorstep. His name was Clinton Jenks. He asked Arturo, are you the one who's been complaining? I said, yes. I said, we're divided. We have no power. They make fun of us. But we ought to do something. He said, yes, he said, but I need some help. Arturo worked with the national representative, Jenks, to bring the unions together into a single, more powerful group that would represent all of them. It was called the Local 890. By 1948, five of the unions had signed on. They bought an old building in the town of Deming to be their union hall. A couple years later, in 1950, the miners' contracts at Empire's Inc. Mine came up for negotiation. This time, the workers demanded a 15-cent raise, two more paid holidays, and a change to the payment system that favored white miners. But the company refused to negotiate. That's when the men decided to go on strike. The film Salt of the Earth depicts these true events with a little extra drama. It's up to you, brothers. And so it began, much like any other strike. There would be no settlement, the company said, till the men returned to their jobs. 
The men set up a picket line blocking the entrances to the mine. They carried signs. From the surrounding hills, they watched for scabs, miners who were trying to cross the picket line to work. Papa, we seen them. Two scabs over there. They're hiding over there in the gully. Empire's Inc. Company drove miners from neighboring mines in the county to try to cross the picket line to work. Others chose to come on their own. There's some important context we have to explain here. So remember, this was a time of hysteria about communists, infiltrating Hollywood, the government, and unions. And in 1947, Congress passed this law known as the Taft-Hartley Act. It redefined the relationship between unions and employers. But most importantly for our story, it included this provision requiring all union officers to sign an affidavit swearing that they weren't communists. And if they didn't, they gave up their union's right to have their grievances heard by the federal government. The Local 890 had refused to sign it. And the company had no intention of compromising with Mexican miners, especially those who might also be communists. The strike did not end. It went on and on into the fourth month, the fifth, the sixth. The company still refused to negotiate. Then, in the eighth month, Lawyers from the Empire's Inc. Company approached a local judge. Arturo Flores said they took advantage of a loophole. They went to court and said, the guys are closing the street. The company said that the strikers should not be allowed to block the road, and the judge ordered the strikers to stop. And because the local 890 had refused to sign those affidavits promising they weren't communists, they couldn't ask the government to help mediate the dispute. They were stuck. If we obey the court... The strike will be lost. The scabs will move in as soon as our picket line is gone. If we defy the court, our pickets will be arrested, and the strike will be lost anyway. What happens next ultimately changed the fate of this strike, turning it from an ordinary event into a historic one. If you read the court injunction carefully, you will see that the only prohibit striking minors from picketing. We women are not striking minors. We will take over your picket line. Women had been involved in the strike since day one, but they were often relegated to working behind the scenes, cooking for the strikers, collecting donations, handing out leaflets. They were the wives, sisters, and daughters of the miners. But now they had an idea. They would take over for the men. Those miners were not comfortable with the women's proposal. And what will happen when the cops come? and beat our women up. Are we going to stand there and watch them? No. We'll take over anyway. And we'll be right back where we started. Only worse. Even more humiliated. Brothers. Brothers. I beg you. Don't allow this. Mostly what shows in the film is the way they acted. Especially the guy who was supposed to have been the leader of the strike. This is maybe one of the most interesting tensions of the Empire's Inc. strike. The people who would have benefited most from having the women take over, the miners, were the ones who were against it. They were embarrassed. They knew that if the women were out blocking the roads, the men would have to stay home and take care of the kids. Clint asked for a vote of the city instead of just the members so that the women could vote. Every adult living in town was given a vote instead of just the union members, who were almost all men. All those in favor that the sisters take over the picket line will so signify by raising their hand. 
All those opposed. Some men silently lifted their hands into the air, but it wasn't enough. The motion has carried 103 to 85. And they voted overwhelmingly to be under strike. The women would replace the men on the picket line. And so they came, the women. They came from Sinktown and the hills beyond, from other mining camps 10, 20, 30 miles away. Women we had never seen before. Women who had nothing to do with the strike. Somehow they heard about the women's picket line, and they came. Meanwhile, the men took over at home. They had to take care of the house, and they found out that the women worked as hard as they did on some things. This sudden change in social hierarchy wasn't easy for the men to handle. In the film, that includes the central couple, Esperanza and Ramon. Have you learned nothing from this strike? Why are you afraid to have me at your side? Do you still think you can have dignity only by have none? Talk of dignity. After what you've been doing. Yes, I talk of dignity. The Anglo buses look down on you, and you hate them for it. Stay in your place, you dirty Mexican. That's what they tell you. But why must you say to me, stay in your place? Do you feel better having someone lording you? Shut up. You're talking crazy. The women understood that they were fighting for more than just the men's jobs. They were fighting to be given respect. And despite the discomfort, the reality was that the men did need the women to win. And the company knew that, too. According to the book by Eleanor Baker, the local sheriff hired a gang of new deputies paid for by the Empire's Inc. company. Their job was to break up scuffles. But mostly, they intimidated the women. They would arrive at the picket line and throw tear gas to try and disperse the crowd. They tried to drive their cars through the picket line. And at one point, they even threw the women in jail, along with some of their children. And then, in January 1952, over a year after the strike had begun, the company finally gave in and agreed to negotiate with the miners. They had won, all thanks to the women of Grant County. So that strike did one thing, as far as I'm concerned. It showed that the women could also get in the fight and be as militant as the men were and win if they had to. And they did. Thanks to the women, the men were able to go back to work. They received a wage increase, vacation benefits, a pension plan, and a health plan. It wasn't everything they asked for, but the miners also won the confidence that if they worked together, they could be powerful. And soon, the real story of the strike was being turned into a film. Salt of the Earth was shot on location in Grant County, New Mexico, using many of the real miners and their families as actors. Because the writer, producer, and director had all been blacklisted in Hollywood, it wasn't easy to finish the film. When Salt of the Earth was made, the strike scenes were filmed in hidden places, away in the hills where no one could see. Rosaura Revueltas, who played Esperanza, was deported to Mexico before she could even finish shooting her final scenes. And the night after they finished filming, someone tried to burn the Union Hall down. When Salt of the Earth was released in 1954, almost no theater would show it. But in the decades that followed, the film would be embraced by activists, 
for its depiction of workers, Chicanos, and women's empowerment. In 1992, the film was included in the National Film Registry at the Library of Congress, a symbol of its importance to American culture. Two weeks after I talked with Arturo Flores, the local 890 leader, his son informed me that he had passed away. He was 100 years old. I found myself coming back to the last thing he said to me during the interview. I've been reading up on history. I like to read history a lot because I think that if you read history, you'll find out how societies advance how they become powerful, and how they dissolve, and why. You know what dissolves societies? Greed. Greed, he said, is what dissolves societies. At the end of the Salt of the Earth film, Esperanza looks out triumphantly at the town. Then I knew we had won something they could never take away. Something I could leave to my children, and they, the salt of the earth, would inherit it. The miner's victory, she seems to say, will mean a better life for future generations. That's producer Saya Caveda. To hear more about the legacies of both the film and the strike in Grant County, you can hear Sayer's full story at latinousa.org. Coming up, how this scene from a film you definitely know inspired one American to pack up and move to Mexico. It's a whale. A whale! You know, I speak whale. Dory, this is not whale. You're speaking like upset stomach. Finding life-changing inspiration in Finding Nemo. That's next on Studio 360. My name is Kiki Kenstra, and I'm from Maryland, just outside Washington, D.C. Kiki listens to our show on WAMU in Washington, and that's where she heard us ask, as we do often, about works of art or culture that have changed your lives. So Kiki was working in an office job when she went to visit friends who were teaching English in Morocco. And she got an idea there. They were having a great time. They loved where they were. And then on weekends and long holidays, they were able to travel around and see the world. And I thought, I could do what they're doing. So I I came back. I went to school full-time to get a teaching degree. And then I began teaching kindergarten. And then Kiki sort of got stuck. I taught for five years. And I had a network of friends and family. I owned a condo on my own. And I didn't have a big need for change. You know, everything was fine. So why rock the boat? 
I'm an adult with no children, so I don't generally see animated films, but someone had recommended it to me, and so I said, okay, I'm going to go see this movie, Finding Nemo. Finding Nemo is about a father clownfish who is widowed, and he has his one little baby, Nemo, and he's a very overprotective father. Hold my fin. Hold my fin. Dad, you're not going to freak out like you did at the petting zoo, are you? Hey, that snail was about to charge. But Nemo gets separated from him. (gasps) Nemo! And the whole movie is Marlin, his father, on this quest to find Nemo. They took him away. I I have to find the boat. A boat? Hey, I've seen a boat. You have? He makes friends with a fish named Dory. Hi, I'm Dory. Where? Which way? Oh, oh, oh. It it went, um, this way. It went this way. Follow me. Thank you. And there's this one scene where... Marlin and Dory find themselves stuck inside a whale. It's a whale? A whale! You know, I speak whale. Dory, this is not whale. You're speaking like upset stomach. What's going on? The water inside the whale is going down and they can't figure out what's happening. The whale is coming up and the water's going down and they start to hang on the tongue. Dory! Marlon thinks he's going to be eaten. He says it's time to let go. Everything's going to be all right. How do you know? How do you know something bad isn't going to happen? I don't. And they let go of the tongue. And they get blown out the blowhole. And they're safe. (laughs) I realized when I saw that scene that I needed to make a decision about my life and and that staying in my life, just hanging onto the tongue, hanging there, hanging there, hanging there, I wasn't doing anything. And I needed to jump. I needed to let go and uh, see what happened. I thought I could find someone to rent my apartment. I could do something with my furniture. I don't have to quit. I can take a leave of absence. So I just started setting the wheels in motion to go overseas. I ended up going to Mexico. I taught in Guadalajara for two years, and it ended up being one of the most amazing experiences of my life. So now I'm back in Maryland at my home and um, teaching. I'm now teaching first grade instead of kindergarten. But um, in my 12 years of teaching, I've always taught mostly Latino children that don't speak English. And I feel that my teaching has gotten so much better because of my two years in Mexico, of me being the fish out of water, of me being the person not being able to speak Spanish and um I've really come back armed with better teaching strategies to work with my kids that are new to the country and probably scared. And um, I feel like I've gone through the same thing that they've gone through. 
¡Vamos! ¡Vamos a encontrar a mi hijo! ¡Señor Gracios! That is Buscando a Nemo and Kiki Kinstra, who listens to the show on WAMU. Studio 360's Jenny Lawton produced our story with help from Jesse Taylor. Is there some movie or book or great building or video game, whatever, that has inspired you to make a big change in your life? Let us know at studio360.org and maybe we'll put your story on the show. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra lopez Monsalve. Our producers are... Tommy Bazarian. Evan Chung. Morgan Flannery. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. And I am Kurt Anderson. I will not confirm nor deny the possibility of a snow machine. Thank you very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, John Cameron Mitchell first took his pitch for a musical TV series to Hollywood, but... My friend Michael Stuno invented the term resting pitch face, which is the face that people hold when you're telling them something they don't want to buy. How the star and creator of Hedwig and the Angry Inch ended up making an epic musical podcast. Next time on Studio 360.